Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm joined by JV and Neil. We're also joined by Steve Crow, who's the strategy director at Clarion Solicitors. Thank you to all the listeners of the podcast. We really do appreciate your help and support. And with all that said, welcome to Tomorrow's Workplace Today. Welcome to the podcast, Steve Crow from Clarion Solicitors. So yeah, Steve, for watchers, listeners, do you want to introduce yourself, who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm uh, Steve Crow. I'm Strategy Director at Clarion. And uh, I guess, what, what does that role entail? It means kind of scanning the horizon, understanding market disruption, changes in the, in the market, if you like, and understanding how that impacts us as an organisation, but also how it impacts sectors in our clients. And you know, that, that change can be either a positive change or a negative change, but we like to be first to be spotting that and bring it to the attention of our clients. That's one of my key functions here at Clarion. Excellent. Well, that leads me into my next question. And so what, what is going on in the world? What, when you're out speaking to clients, what are the kind of key trends that you're, you're picking up on? Crikey. I mean, I, I think in my 35-year-plus career, I've never seen so much uh, change in, 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 the, uh, in the economy, actually. Um, and, yeah, that change, as I said before, could be having positive or negative impact on, on business models. I guess it's just depending on you know, what it is you, you do as an organisation. Um, so, you know, I guess yeah, if I track back over the last couple of years, you know, we've had impact around supply chains with, with Brexit and COVID, you know, yeah. the, the impact of things like the, the boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal. Yeah, um, I remember that. They're, wow. they're saying it's still going to be years before everything gets back to where it needs to be. So, you know, what, what has that done to you know, organisations that are sourcing products and components from, from China, then you know, those lead times have gone from maybe 15 weeks to you know, 60 weeks. So you know, if you've got that critical component that's in your product mm. and you can't get it, what do you do? Um, so that's, that's a big thing. So we're actually seeing some organisations having to redesign their products to design it for the products they can get or the components they can get rather than the ones they've historically oh. used. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a big impact I guess in in, in manufacturing. Are you, are you seeing people moving away from China, and where are they? If they are, where are they moving to? Are they bringing it back onshore or nearshore? Or? There's certainly a little bit of um, reshoring. Actually, there's there's a couple of dynamics there. We're seeing some north shoring. You know, yeah. So, actually, we're seeing businesses um, that are looking to get a cost reduction or better value. They're shifting stuff from from London and the south up to you know, regions like Yorkshire, and we've certainly benefited um, from that. We're working with a lot of London-based organisations that are looking for that you know, cost efficiency, but we are starting to see some some reshoring. Um, sometimes it's just to build a bit more resilience into into the business model mm. uh, of organisations, kind of de-risk what they they do, and also with the um, you, you, I'm sure you will have seen that sort of rising trend around ESG. If you're bringing components or whatever from the other side of the planet, it's the carbon footprint associated with that. So I think. Again, we're seeing some organisation being attuned to, to that dynamic and thinking about, about reshoring. Mm. Okay, so supply chain is, is one trend. What are the other, and you talked about the economy as well. Um, are you seeing increased amounts of, I guess, distressed firms given the current economy, or is that, do you think that's still to come? Yeah, I, th- I think, again, it, it really depends <coughs> on the nature of your organisation. Um, there's certainly, um, yeah, yeah, as, a, as an organisation that deals with the distressed side of, of the economy, so we're often supporting organisations with kind of turnarounds and and, and, and actually, sadly, uh, some some administrations as as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So during the last two years, you might imagine that that would be a very buoyant market, but actually it hasn't, it's been fairly quiet. Um, so perhaps not as much distress as you, as you might have thought, but we're certainly seeing an increase in the last couple of months. And as, as I, I guess when we get into 2023, combination of cost of living and mm. energy costs, I think we'll be putting a, a huge pressure on certain segments of, of the market. So you know, the, the kind of retail sector, you'll have seen you know, a lot of distress around around that. Um, hospitality and leisure, I think, would be another one. And then some aspects of manufacturing. Um, so if you're, a, if you're a manufacturer that uh, is making a, um, a low value component and you're using a lot of energy to, 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 to make the product, then you're gonna be quite exposed. Mm. Whereas if you're making a complex value adding product, you might still have high energy costs, but actually the energy costs in terms of the overall cost of the product is you know you can just kind of wash that up if you like and so you know those sort of manufacturers are still doing doing okay mm. you, you mentioned earlier steve about obviously um regional in you know obviously yorkshire proud of yorkshire but companies from london are now starting to deal with you you know to, to move things uh, north you mentioned earlier about um the, the the fact that companies are you know distressed how how does Yorkshire region compared to other parts, you know, nationally, you know, how, how are we doing? Are we seeing that we're less affected because cost of living may be slightly cheaper than down south? How, how's that comparing? I, I, I get a, a very, a very complex um, question. I think if I, if I look at um, some aspects of, of the region, you know, the, the, there is dis distress there. Um, actually, if you take you know, St. <coughs> Leeds, for example, I think it, it came out as the top um, tech city in, in the UK and it's one of the fastest growing cities in the UK so to some extent you see maybe a pulling of you know at least almost pulling I guess from the rest of the the, the, the region um, but equally we see some world-class businesses here yeah I, I mean I'm fortunate to, to to kind of meet with a lot of business in my, my role and you see some phenomenal businesses that are absolutely world-class um, in the emerging you know, space satellite market um, who would have thought that Yorkshire would have, you know, probably three, four hundred companies involved in satellite technology, making components that yeah. are actually on, you know, on satellites. There's a phenomenal business over towards Hud Huddersfield called Reliance that make the gearing system that uh, unfold the solar array on satellites. In fact, I think it's the Rosetti sat satellite used there their technology, so a world-class company here in Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. uh, other organisations using the data from satellites to underpin and enhance business models. You know, so your ability to use satellites to measure very fine incremental measurements on the ground. So if you want to look at real-time flooding, you can do that with satellite te technology. Um, and I suspect increasingly we'll see organisations using to, to monitor real-time assets on the ground. So if you're a water utility, for example, wouldn't it be great if you can monitor all your moving components across all of your sites and use the data analytics to work a potential fail, you know, and to have ordered the component mm. before it actually fails. So the, think about the cost efficiencies from, from that. We've got um, in the region a world-class cluster around health tech, you know, some amazing businesses, big and small, that are doing some cutting edge stuff around health tech. Again, using data to solve, you know, to solve problems in the, in the health, uh, healthcare sector. What, what sort of, give me some examples of that, what are they, what are they doing when it comes to health tech? So um, one of the things that um, in, in Bradford, uh, they've got an initiative that's been running for decades called Born in Bradford, so they've been capturing data on hundreds of thousands of, 
of starting with kids, capturing information from when they're born, all mm. the way through to becoming adults. And if, if those people are prepared to give their, their data, then you can start to look at the issues around that. You can look at emerging health issues, health conditions. You can make a link between um, the impact of um, air pollution from traffic on Bradford to people's health and looking so they have actually made that that link that the closer you are to a you know polluted area it, it impacts um, brain development as, 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 a, as a young child so one of the reasons as I understand it the Bradford has stuck to its guns in terms of congestion charging is because it's got the data to allow mm -hmm. them to you know to confirm that there's an issue there um, so equally there are businesses like EMIS and TPP will be two of the largest um, GP patient medical record systems uh, tech companies that they, they, they are able to look at again data to look at um, geodemographic health conditions so wouldn't it be great to be able to say we know that a certain segment of society is is likely to suffer from I don't know, some sort of heart condition and to have an early intervention so I don't know the, the, you know, the, the technicalities but it might mean the difference from having a a bypass operation that mm. costs hundreds of thousands, you know, in the yeah, in the NHS to having a simple procedure if you capture it sort of maybe ten years earlier. Yeah. You know, wouldn't that be great? So, mm. so data I think can be a powerful force for good. I think in in, in health. Uh, but then, you know, that whole digitisation, we see it. You know, not just in healthcare. You see it in financial services. Again, this region's got one of the biggest financial services of, uh, in in the UK, second only to. To, to, to London, um, so we're seeing the emergence of, of fintech. We're seeing um, the emergence of um, edtech in education. So mm. again, during COVID, COVID was a real catalyst yeah. to businesses like Twinkle that people might not have heard of a few years ago. Employed probably a, a thousand people now. You know, so again, this um, digitization of sectors we see it um, equally in in the manufacturing sector where you've got industry four points. Zero. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think where organisations are under pressure and they're looking to build resilience into their, their models, manufacturing is looking at capturing more data from their processes using sensors, maybe connected to Raspberry Pis, and then again looking at the patterns in the sand to say, well, where can we get a process efficiency by looking at all, all, all the data? Um, I was at a business called Schneider Electric um, here in Leeds um, last week who are one of the few companies that I've seen adopt Industry 4.0 all the way through their processes you know, so they can see exactly where they can get an incremental improvement. You know, so for companies I think that um, you know, want to be uh, you know, resilient with you know, kind of a, ch a challenging economy ahead of us, then they need to be looking at all of these different things as mm. to how they can get those incremental improvements. How does a manufacturing business get into a new sector like satellites? Is it, do you have to be in it already, or is there an opportunity to, I guess, diversify your manufacturing organisation to get into those kind of growth areas? I think typically um, a sensible organisation will look at its competencies, mm -hmm. and it might have been, I can think of a business, I won't mention the name, but they've been exclusively associated with the um, civil aerospace mm -hmm. market. Um, with COVID, um, imagine that that sector literally you know, was dead on its, on, on its feet, so they had to very rapidly um, I think the trendy word is, is pivot their business model. <laughs> yeah. So what did they do? They went into the defence side of aerospace, which was still actually you know, holding up. But then actually the skills that they had were, were broadly the skills that you needed to go into making components for the satellite market, which is what they've done. So they've really heavily gone into 
into that. So as a business, they've had some tough times, but they've come through it and actually mm -hmm. they're probably stronger for it. And then they've now got a slightly more diversified business. So if, if I'm a business um, looking about going into new markets, I think you've got to think, well, what are our core competencies? And is there an emerging market where we can apply those competencies? You know, maybe what you've got in your sector, you've fine honed, and actually there's a, another sector where your skills are appropriate, where they're, they're, they're a little bit sleepy, and mm -hmm. you can go in and disrupt that, that market. And how do you find those sectors? Because if you've always sold into this particular segment of the market, how do you even, I guess, broaden your horizon to find the new areas that are growing? which are difficult to find sometimes. Well, I, I guess going back to my, my original introduction, you know, we, 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 we uh, as a firm will probably have 150 events a year, mm. you know, conferences, seminars, roundtables, and those are not about what we do as a law firm generally, they're about what's happening in the market. So we will often be, we like to be the organisation that says, hey, look, here's something new. Mm. Come to a seminar, we'll get some great speakers, and you'll find out a little bit more about it. And maybe that change is a threat to your business model and you're very rapidly thinking, well, crikey, we need to do something about that, mm. or actually it can be a real opportunity. You know, so if I track back on some of the seminars that we've run over the last sort of decade or so, you know, we were talking about you know, kind of, you know, Bitcoin, um, um, sort of 10 years ago we were running events around 3D printing, where you know, at that stage 10 years ago it was you know, making little polymer sort of components. Mm. And, Actually, I met a, an amazing business um, over towards Hull um, only a couple of months ago who are um, printing in, in metal. And I don't know if you've seen a, a 3D metal printer. I suspect you have because I think I saw, yeah. saw one in your offices. Mm -hmm. But this additive ability to make, uh, in an additive way, components. So this organisation 3D printed a, a, a stainless steel cube that if you or I were looking at it, you would not see any joints in it at all. They printed, printed this in a way that you could push through a central component and it suddenly became visible. It was zero tolerance um, printing. They, they also um, were able to 3D print something you just couldn't make on a CNC machine. So they, they make um, products uh, molds for BMW. So BMW have got various plastic components in the engine compartment of their, of their cars. And so you imagine these plastic molds, these plastic components have to be put over a, a mold and then kept there uh, and then you know, repeat it again, but the cycle time might be one plastic component made per minute. What this organisation did was to create almost like worm casts just below the surface of the mould, which they were able to put cooling water through, which meant that the plastic components only had to be in contact with the mould for a matter of seconds. So you think about wow. the impact of someone like BMW, mm. productivity vastly improves. So again, you know, some real, you know, really great businesses in Yorkshire doing cutting edge cutting edge stuff. Hi guys, I just want to jump in and talk about a specific area of automation which we often get involved in, which is the processing of supplier invoices or accounts payable automation as it's also known. Most businesses have invoices that they get sent from their suppliers. Essentially what our solutions do is they read those invoices, they extract key information from them, like purchase order numbers, supplier codes or supplier names. We then use that information and match that up against digital records. So can we find a purchase order number? Can we find a good receive note for that product? If we can, then we can match it up, we can reconcile it, and we can automatically post that into your finance system. What makes us different is that we configure our solutions to be specific to your organization. So we're not an out the box, plug it in and see what you get. We actually understand more about your processes, your organization, your supplier base, and we configure the solution to meet those requirements. Hopefully that's enough to pique your interest. If it is, get in touch, let's have a chat. Okay.
So, so you, you mentioned earlier, Steve, around you hold 150 events a, a year. That sounds, that sounds a busy year. Yeah. Um, and obviously what you want to do is go in and offer that value to your clients about, have you thought about this? This is what we're seeing. So apart from getting um, speakers in, how else do you find that, you know, I, I guess, information, that, that you know, IP, if you like, to, to add that value to your clients, apart from getting people, experts in that, how are you doing that? Well, I think any successful business, um, you know, particularly in times of change, you do not want to be sticking your head in the sand. It's about being constantly curious. And, you know, if I think of some of the most successful businesses, they're not the ones that sort of hunker down and, you know, they don't trust, you know, the banks or the accountants or the lawyers or, you know, IT consultants. You mm -hmm. do get organisations like that. I think the ones that are successful tend to be open to talking to people, being curious, you know, so you can, you can do research, you can go to conferences, you know, so not just clarifying, but conferences. Um, I, I spend half my life listening to, to Radio 4. There's always something on there about some sort of change. So I think it's just being open and curious, you know, constantly mm. thinking about what's happening in my, 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 my market. You know, is that, is that, you might just pick up something. Is that a trigger for doing something different? Because I think in a time where there's so much change at the moment, the last thing you can do is to be closed-minded. You've got to be open and curious and thinking about how does that change impact my, my business model. Mm. And I guess it's easier for smaller businesses to pivot, as you say, because they haven't got the legacy systems and the legacy culture and everything that comes with it. And it's a real opportunity for SMEs to get ahead. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I mean, we're we're a, a fairly decent-sized firm, but we're far from being the biggest you know, kind of Law, law, law firm and, and actually that ability, um, that agility I guess, yeah. to very quickly move, you know, the, sort of the lines of, of, of permission if you like within our organisation can be a matter of minutes or as I've worked in you know, some of the biggest professional service firms um, on the planet, you know, to, to, to respond to change means you sometimes have to go through a whole cycle of, or series of, of permissions to, to, mm. to, to, to do something. So. You're absolutely right. I think uh, um, you know, if you're a, 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 an entrepreneurial SME, then probably all the more reason to think about how do we outflank the kind of competition. Yeah. And so, you know, on one hand, I, I, I'm advocating being curious about the change dynamics in the market. The other thing you've always got to have an eye on is what is the competition doing? You know, can, you know, can we be quicker to to, to move on on, on, on something? Mm. Um, so we, we we see organisations that. Um, will be one of thousands in a very mature market, but we also see organisations where the competitive dynamic is, you know, is, is just not there. There might be only two or three organisations that do what they do. You know. So again, it's understanding change, yeah. but also what, is, what does my competitive dy dynamic look like? And sometimes the competition can be something unexpected. I mean, you think about um, um, if you were a restaurant owner 10 years ago in, in Hull or, or, or Leeds, you might think about a threat to your business being another restaurant being opened up mm -hmm. down, you know, down the road. Well, actually, the biggest threat to restaurants is being technology companies, you mm -hmm. know, Just Eats and you know, the, the, the Delivery. like. You know, Delivery, yeah. So you know, I, I think any organization needs to be thinking, how could tech either benefit my business or what is the threat? How could it disrupt my business model? Yeah. So talk about tech then. So what when you were out speaking to businesses, what are the technology trends specifically? You talked about three D printing, but are there any? And you talked about data as well. Actually, so you've, you've touched on some of this, but are there any other 
trends around technology that you're coming across? Well, I think it, it tends to apply to um, certain sectors, you know, so um, going back to one of my favourite subjects is space and mm. satellites, you, you can see how organisations are doing some something quite unusual there, so in, 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 a, in, a, tax, in a, a time where we're, we've got increasing climate change, you know, either droughts or or, or flooding, if you're, a, if you're a farmer then you need to work out how to deal with that, so actually if we've got, you know, kind of um, bans on, on, on using host pipes uh, uh, and you've got to use your water sort of sparingly as a farmer, if you can use satellite technology to kind of look at where your field is dry and, mm -hmm. and, and needs to be watered, or where you need to apply um, soil conditions or fertilisers, so again we, we're seeing increasingly organisations doing that, or using AI combine harvesters, um, you know, so all of that is, is coming. You think, well, um, why is that? You know, so I guess part, part of what we, you know, his, historically, you know, two or three years ago, we'd had a lot of labour coming in from Eastern Europe, and then combination of COVID and Brexit, we don't have that. So if you're a farmer, where do you get the labour? Well, if you can't, then increasingly you'll have to look to mm -hmm. automation. And so, you know, we're seeing sort of trends are, you know, trends around around that. Uh, I saw that actually in terms of like, it could map the field and then efficiently map out which route to get the biggest yield. Yeah. Like right down to the edge and like, yeah, to, to the nth degree. They also knew that depending on where the farmer was and depending on whether he made, made the bill payments, he could actually switch the combine off. They could actually <laughs> turn it off, which I thought was quite amusing. But um, yeah, the yield. Because again, I know when we've met before, we've talked about data quite a lot. And again, there's quite a big data sort of hub in, in, in Leeds. From, that's something that you advise your customers on. It's one of the, uh, the value-added pieces when you go in and out in conversations. It's actually, because I know you've got a big database of, of again companies sectors like you mentioned there who's in growth who's in decline you can actually make data-driven decisions but yeah so I, I guess yeah whilst um, you know big focus for me is you know is is driving clarion strategy and you know we've had over a decade of double-digit growth I think we've just come out as the third fastest growing law firm in in Europe so we use data very effectively to drive our own strategy mm. but also yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this region and, and so you know, a lot of what we do is trying to help our clients and our friends to be successful. So we use our, our, our data and our expertise around driving growth to help our clients. Yeah, I'm a strong believer that you know, rising tide you know, brings up all boats home. So you know, if we can help companies in Yorkshire to be proportionally more successful, then the region thrives, we improve GDP and all that goes with, with that. So you know, we, 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 don't, we don't charge for that, it's something that we we see it as a way of putting something back into the local region. We want companies in this region to be successful, particularly those that are doing something, you know, kind of exciting that have got the ability to scale and to be world class. And we've certainly got, you know, plenty of those, you know, particularly in the in the tech sector. So yeah. Sometimes asking those questions, like you say, until you've got someone like yourself coming in, uh, sitting around a table, having those strategic tech conversations, asking those pivotal questions, and then seeing if the data backs up the gut feeling. Because an MD might go, oh yeah, we've done this for years, or I see this trend, but then might have a look at the data and be like, well actually, have you seen it from this angle? Yeah. And then it's like, oh, well, okay. And then again, allows people to pivot again. That's, sorry, Steve, that was the question I was going to ask, is actually, obviously you've mentioned data a, a lot through this, this pod. Um, what I'm interested in is, on the back of what Neil was saying, is when you go in and have those conversations, 
what's what's the um, sort of feedback you get initially because you know when we go and talk to people about data it's kind of like well I, I know what's going on in my business and, and then when you actually start saying well actually if you've got some more insight into your data you might find some gaps yeah. that then means actually you're missing a trick because actually if you filled those gaps in maybe better you know data population in at the start data entry um, you get improved results. So when you go into businesses and you're saying, look, data's the new currency, that's how you're going to be able to grow your business double digit for however many years. How's that received and, and what do you have to do to convince people? Obviously, you've got lots of evidence by the sounds of it, but how, how's that received? I, I think it's, it's, it's taking the data, but also bringing um, commercial pragmatism to how you can use the data to get a, a positive outcome for the business. So, you know, often you'll see an organisation, I'll often ask a company, you know, who, who are your top 10 customers? And I remember doing this for a, a manufacturing business a year or two ago, and, you know, their, their clients were, you know, the likes of Siemens and, and Rolls-Royce and, you know, that, that, that sort of British aerospace. And, um, and actually when you kind of looked at um, the, the revenue, that they had from those organisations, it was it was relatively modest, and, and I guess what they didn't know was actually within some of those you know global org organisations, they were just working with one subsidiary of say Rolls Royce, or, or, or Honeywell was I think was a particular example that were working with one division of Honeywell. When we analysed um, Honeywell globally, there were two thousand divisions in Honeywell wow. that they didn't know about. One of which was based literally ten miles down the road. Uh, and they didn't know about. And so when we looked at the the, the, the website of this division of Honeywell down the road, the point was, we should be working for them. Mm -hmm. And so I made the point, it's a, it's a well-known fact, that it's something between six to time, 10 times easier to cross-sell to an existing satisfied customer than to go and get a new customer. So my, my, my very, very simple advice was, look, we'll analyze your top 10 customers in the same way and just maximize your exposure to those organisations. This was a business that was had flatlined for six years and, and after we had done the analysis and said just focus on cross-selling to your customers, I went back to visit them a year later they'd grown by 20% by just being really focused mm. on the existing client, client base. Uh, a, a, another example would be an organisation whose business model has been disrupted, they've spotted it was going to be disrupted a year, too, like, uh, uh, a year or two ago so they make components for the automotive sector and so the, the com 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 components would only be used on a, a conventional petrol or diesel engine and clearly the disruption there is the emerging EV market mm. so they can see it's not going to change overnight but it's a slow slide in terms of you know their, their market there so they wanted something to replace that and so they've come up with a new product completely different you know kind of sector and so um, the, the, the new product is applicable to the whole of the UK manufacturing sector. Um, whereas historically, you know, all they had to do was keep, keep six automotive OEMs happy and the work just kept, kept coming in. Yeah. So it was like an inbound sort of, you know, kind of market for them. Actually, now they were having to take their new product out into the market, into the manufacturing sector. So we were able to analyse the whole of the UK manufacturing sector and say, look, this is what it looks like. But then, actually, let's get let's let's have some further segmentation there. Let's just focus on where your your product is going to really resonate, which would be the kind of the five to fifty million pound market. So we segmented down to there, and so we say, well, actually, you're based in Yorkshire. Let's start with just Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. In fact, let's just focus on the town that you're you're in. So we got it right down from thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies, 
down to a small number of organisations that we could absolutely focus on. And then we said, well, look, we'll, we'll help you. We'll, we'll bring those companies together in a round table and talk about how your product could add value to their business models and how, what their product could do in terms of improving the resilience of those organisations. So I guess companies, you know, if you just give them with a load of data, say, there you go, it doesn't add much value. What we're doing is giving the data and then underpinning with some really practical advice as to how you can commercialise it. So, then, so you set up a round table then, more of a, a bit of a thought leadership, a bit of a, a warmer in then, I guess, as a, as a conversation around R&D and a bit more around, because, yeah, okay, that makes, that makes sense. It's easier than just knocking on the door. Not mm -hmm. easier, but it's a different angle than just knocking on the door and going straight for the jugular and, and sort of asking the question. But you can have more of a yeah intellectual conversation about okay, if we did develop this product, or would you find this of service? Or and it's you know you you'll know that sort of consultative approach that you know the worst salespeople that they've got their product, they knock on the door, say, do you want some of this? You know, mm -hmm. you know the consultative selling is about understanding what is the real issue, what's the pain that that organisation yeah. or that individual is facing and creating a vision with them as to how you can help them to, to get to where they need to be but to link it to value, to say look if we can achieve this you know, and solve that problem to you, for you, what is the value that our solution can create for you and, and value for me comes down to this solution will help you to reduce costs or enhance re revenue or create resilience or create competitive advantage, if you can quantify that, then they're more likely to, to move with you. Mm -hmm. Nothing worse than that sort of, you know, kind of cold, you know, mm -hmm. kind of cold selling sort of approaches there. You talk about Clarion in the top three growth listers um, within in Europe, Europe, which is phenomenal. Yeah. What, what do you put that growth down to? What are the key things that you as an organisation have done over the last few years which have led to that growth? Because it was the envy of many businesses. Yeah. Sure. Well, I think there's a famous, um, saying from some Harvard business guru that said that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast mm. every morning but it's leadership that puts the food on the on the table <laughs> and, and, and and as a strategy person that's a bit of a bit of a pill to, to swallow but I think the real answer is you need those three things and mm. this is what I think eludes a lot of organizations <coughs> you need really strong leadership it's it's you know leadership that says actually you know you hear a lot of organizations particularly when uh, there's, there's you know perhaps a a rough time in the economy you might say you know we're gonna we're gonna hunker down we're gonna batter down the hatches we'll just stay as we are i think real leadership says well actually times of change is an opportunity we're still going to grow by 10 15 20 percent which is historically what we've done as an organization and uh, and so is that you know sense of you know we're gonna keep keep going for because once you've made that decision you can't achieve a 20 percent growth by just keeping everything else the same. Mm. It drives your recruitment strategy. So once we've committed to 20% growth, it means we're going to have to recruit another 50, 60, 70 people mm. and, and all that goes with that. That means there's a, an impact on our spend on IT because they'll all need laptops, they'll all need desks. You know, So you've got to be really clear that your growth strategy is underpinned by a proper strategy, mm. but the, the decisions there, therefore follow. Um, and then in, t in terms of culture, I think you know for me, culture is... It's so important, it can be quite subjective. So again, for the last two years, you know there's only times best companies to work for. Mm, so yeah. two years ago, we were ranked second across all sectors, all sizes. And this year, we've managed to hold that, that, that position. As, you know, so you know, on one hand, I think we're achieving the growth, but also we've, we're, we've keep, we're keeping that culture. And you've got to work at it. And particularly as you get bigger and bigger, you've got to constantly think about how do we make this a really exciting and a great place to, 
to work. So we place great store in uh, our culture. So I've talked about leadership, you know, kind of we're going to go for it again, the culture. And I, th I think the, the third final, final bit is, is, is the strategy piece, which is around knowing you know, what we've talked about already, knowing what that change looks like, you know, projecting forward as to how it impacts us. And then we're only successful as long as we're working with clients that are doing okay. So it's, it goes back to how do, we, how do we help our clients to succeed? And if we're working with clients that, that succeed, then you know, and we support them with our legal services and we will continue to grow. So you know, for me, it is taking that complete ecosystem approach to the economy. It's not just about Clary and you know, being successful in its own right. It's, it's how do we support the whole eco ecosystem to be successful. So we spend a lot of time, for example, um, in, in an economy that is still largely skills constrained. You know, so there are very few sectors where you know, they don't have a skills problem. Mm. And, and what we're trying to do is to make that link between the private sector and academia. So we're plugged into all the universities and the colleges and the schools, and we're trying to get the schools to understand the needs of the, of the private sector. So to give you a, a very specific example, um, linked back to the satellite initiative, within the satellite cluster, there is a subcluster called RF, radio frequency. And when you look at the, it's a real niche area, uh, and historically, RF capability in this region came out of the University of Leeds, and there were businesses like Philtronic that were very much the four, yeah. forerunners of, of understanding that. And actually, from that, other companies have spawned from Philtronic and, uh, and elsewhere. So we've got a cluster of maybe 40, 50 RF companies. It doesn't sound very big, but when you look at the whole of the UK, it's probably the leading mm. RF cluster in, in the UK, if not Europe, and I'm, I'm throwing it out there, hoping it sticks. You know? <laughs> Yorks has got the biggest RF cluster in, in, in Europe. And why is that important? Because RF underpins Internet of Things, satellite technology, tech, 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 telco. So if you talk to the defence primes and you look at where their gap is in their supply chain, it's RF. Mm. If you talk to the telecommunications primes, OEMs, whatever you want to call them, and ask them where their, 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 their gap is in terms of competencies, it's RF uh, and, and, and other sectors. So you think, well, hang on, we've got a leading capability in RF here in Yorkshire. It's a growing market. We should be putting more, into, and, and it's, 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 it's a value-adding you know, type of work. You know, these, are, these are great, complex businesses that are in RF. Well, we want to grow that, surely. But to do that, we need to be convincing kids when they're going to school, you know, primary school, secondary school, university, that they should have a career in RF. It's a mm. difficult subject, but you can get a great salary if you go to. So for me, it's about how do you get that strategic alignment from a regional perspective? You know, we're saying this is one of our big bets in RF. Then we need to reverse that back into, yeah. into the kids and inspire them to, to get involved in this. And in particular, I think um, kids that are very attuned to climate change and, you know, and, and kind of the planet and their own personal carbon footprint. Well, actually you can inspire them to say that these satellites up there, some of what they can do is to monitor the, the climate. They can look at the melting of ice caps, so they can look at forest degradation in, in Brazil. So satellites can be used to create huge positivity. Mm. But if you want that, then you might want to consider a career in, in RF and make a difference. Yeah, that's really, because um, on a number of podcasts, we've, we've had discussions around um, the education system and you know we're doing the same subjects and the same sort of you know um, 
core you know strategies if you like for decades and actually you know our children are, are going to have probably different requirements and, and you know employers are going to have different requirements in 10 15 years time than they do now or yeah. 10 years ago and so for me that that's really exciting to hear that actually you know you or some of your clients are going into schools to actually educate you know what start thinking about these these careers because it's different to you know what it was 10 years ago or mm. 15 years ago so that's that's yeah exciting to him now, my son's just started secondary school so he's just at that that stage where he's starting to think about what should he be you know mm. what subject should he be taking to then what degree should he take etc so that's there was some, some i can't remember the exact stat or quote but they're saying something like that 50 percent of the jobs that we, we, we want in in, in 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 say 10 15 years in the future don't even exist yet mm. you know? yeah so it's a real challenge for kids yeah. to think so for me it's about you know kids being um you know creating their own resilience in their career you know they think about um, having the skills in the uh, and the personal skill sets to be agile, so that you know you won't have a job for life. You you might have ten, fifteen jobs yeah. for life, and you know it's it's thinking how do you how do you achieve that? So it's it's inspiring kids to be constantly curious, I think, but also to be constantly reskilling themselves. You know that you don't you know you, you don't stop learning what you you need to do to you know, your job by you in your mid-twenties and then you just carry on, I think you're going to have to constantly Evolve. reinvent yourself. Yeah. yeah, And be strategic. And be guess, strategic. In the same way that businesses are, it's picking the, the areas, the technologies, the competences that are going to be successful in the future. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what you're doing. Um, the podcast is called Tomorrow's Workplace Today. So we, we like to look forward at the workplace of tomorrow, if you like. So um, if you cast your mind forward 10 years, what do you think the workplace looks like in, in a sense that's different from today? That's some difficult questions. <laughs> um, we didn't give Steve a heads up. We never give one. anybody the heads up for this question. And everybody I'll, looks like that. I'll, I'll have a go. Well, actually, you know, COVID the last two, two, <coughs> two and a half years has been a good, a good rehearsal, hasn't it? You know, has. Who'd have thought that you know, we'd have you know, spending so much time at, at home? Um, I, 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 I suspect that you know, we'll still be you know, working in a, in a hybrid fashion. You know, so I think you know, over the last two and a half years, We've absolutely ad adopted that at, at Clarion. We probably have 50% of our people in any on any particular mm. day. Um, people think about what they need to come in for, and, and that, that sense of presenteeism that might have been pervasive in, in, in the UK, I think, has gone now. There's no shame in saying, right, I'm, I'm working from home uh, today. I think for us, the, the drivers for people to come in, particularly with our younger lawyers, is you know, they like uh, the, the social experience they're coming mm -hmm. in to you know to, to to meet their kind of peers um they're, they're coming in for that inform informal on the job training so they're listening to, from a, to, to a conversation with a senior person and they're picking up you know it's not stuff from a textbook mm -hmm. but they're thinking oh that's how you approach that particular thing so i think there's a an element of that and i think um also you'll see people coming in um for not to do the run-of-the-mill stuff. If, if you're just, you know, in, in, in the legal sector, just going through some files for the day, well, you may as well do that at home. Mm. But if you're problem-solving and you, and you require other, other people's input, it's that co-creation of, of something, then that's, for me, you know, that's the time when you should be coming into the, into the office, is, you know, is, to, is to get that sparking off each mm. other and, yeah. and mutual problem-solving. 
Um, to a degree, you can you can do that on Teams or Zoom, but I, I think that just personal, you know, being in a, a space together, it's a different it's a different experience. So um, I think balance with that, you know. You know we were half joking that some people will want to come in more because they don't want to turn the heating on. <laughs> they would come into a nice warm, nice warm office. So that might also be a, a driver for, for change. But I think um, going to tech is, is um, I, I think one of the big things we'll see in the future is more collaboration. I, I think mm. that's one of the big things is, is um, how do you collaborate with other organizations in the, in the supply chain to solve a particular problem? If you're going to do that across you know, the whole of the UK or even internationally, if you're going to take the best of experience, then you might have to draw on expertise internationally. Then IT as a platform is a, is a brilliant thing to facilitate that. Mm. You know, collaborative software that allows people to, to work together efficiently, I think, will be an important thing in, in the future. And, and last question, just about the legal sector, actually, because I, I always have a perception of the legal sector that it's still very traditional. Um, lots of documents moving around, and is that is that still the case? Is it a sector that is digitising, or you know, technologies that come to the forefront in the legal sector? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you two have looked at um, the amount of paper that we printed off in in Clarion, I mean, I shouldn't say, but it's been quite substantial. Mm. And you you walk around the office now, there's very little paper. Our print has has reduced quite a bit. So we've the behaviours of of changing. That's probably a positive thing from from a planetary perspective, but actually a lot of our stuff is now digitised, so if it's been digitised you've got to have the ability to kind of search on stuff and find things efficiently, so we've, we've invested huge amounts in our, our, our IT platforms. I think we'll increasingly see in the legal sector machine learning, AI, to create further efficiency. You see if you've got huge bundles of documents where you're looking for kind of key trigger words, the ability to kind of to do that, I think, will be important, which creates efficiencies for, for our clients' experience. Mm. I think um, looking at another aspect of, of uh, IT would be um, a, a well-run, ambitious organisation is going to invest in its, in its ERP systems or CRM systems. You know, so you've got to be, if, you, if you're, a, if you're a, an ambitious entrepreneur, from, you need to understand who your customers are, what conversations mm. you've got, you know, what does your opportunity pipeline look like. And so, you know, again, we've invested heavily in that. So it's it's, it's only going to go one way. Um, so, so actually, you know, the the thing that will differentiate, I think, the law firm of the future is clients will just expect you to be able to do the law. Mm. What it will be will be about the broader client experience. You know, what are you doing to help me to grow my business? And so that's where I think you know, Clarion perhaps is a. a a bit of a forerunner, we really absolutely get that. You know, it's not about us, it's about you as an organisation. How can we give you a great experience in terms of the law, the law that we're doing for you, but how do we add value to your business through our insights and through our connectivity and our networks? You know, we'll do that day in, day out. You know, um, I could give you hundreds of examples where we've, you know, we've, we've tried to help clients to, to be more successful. I think on that note, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Thank, thank you. Really appreciate it. Some great questions. Mm -hmm. <coughs> <A bit. coughs> Cut.